this is phantom power. Episode three. Dirty Rat. So, what are we listening to here, Mac? What do you think we're listening to here, Chris? <laughs> I don't know. What is that? Is that an? Is that some? Is that an? Owl put through a filtering device or something. Uh, you, you think it sounds like an owl put through a filtering device? Let's no. let's listen to some more. Right? Oh wow! It's so synthetic. It sounds like an old theater organ. Having a bad day. Oh, yeah. No, I'm hearing that now. Okay. A pipe organ. Yeah. Or something that hasn't got a lot of wheeze left in it. Something sad is happening in the silent film. Something very sad is happening. Harold Boyd fell off the clock. (laughs) 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 And so he did. All right. So it's, it's rats. That's a rat? That's a rat. So today we're going to meet the guy behind the rat recordings that you just heard a moment ago, Brian House. He's a composer and sound artist I met last November at the Conference for the Society of Literature, Science, and the Arts, which is this really crazy conference for interdisciplinary scholarship and creative experimentation. And I I met Brian, and when I heard about what he was working on, I just knew we had to have him on the show. His work uses sound to express relationships between bodies, human and non-human bodies, social relationships, geographic relationships, temporal relationships, and sonic relationships. So we'll be hearing three different pieces of his. A musical composition that traces human, urban, and transatlantic movement, a field recording from the wetlands of Botswana, and an installation that will take us into the underground boroughs of New York City. This is work that helps us make sense of relationships we normally can't sense at all. Well, my name is Brian House, and I'm an artist based right now up here in Providence, although I frequently do work down in New York. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm up here at Brown University at the moment, uh, working on my PhD in music.
So, Mac, how does Brian get interested in rats when he's working on music? Well, I think in order to get into that, we need to sort of understand a little bit more about his previous work and some of the themes that are going on in it. You know, I've been particularly interested uh, in the ideas of Andre Lefebvre, right? who in his last writings, he outlined this poetic methodology called rhythm analysis. Yeah, yeah, he was the French Marxist sociologist, um, spent a good amount of time thinking about life in the city and... And, um, and the design of the urban environment and... And that's been the basis uh, for a lot of my recent work. And through focusing on time in a specific way, uh, or rather temporality, in a way that maybe subverts some of the epistemological biases of the society we live in, which is very object-focused, very visually focused. Um, so to have a more acoustic way of experiencing things, but not in a way that's limited to sound, more the ways that the rhythms of our body come into contact with the world around us. So if this is sounding a little bit abstract, maybe it'll help to talk about a particular piece. What we're listening to right now is a piece of Brian's called Quotidian Record. And it says it's a kind of sonic mapping of his movement through space. Well, you know, I was really interested in, in the rhythms of everyday life as you move around the city uh, and how that had a particular kind of musical quality to it, or at least I thought it did, right? So I, I tracked my location uh, using an app on my phone, right, for an entire year. Uh, so I had the latitude and longitude coordinates. And I took that and transformed it into a, a piece of music. So every place I visited became a note, right? And the same, same pitch of the note meant the same place. Uh, but the rhythms from one place to another, you know, were largely as, as I had experienced them. Uh, except for the fact that instead of taking a year, I condensed it down to about 11 minutes. So that's about, you know, uh, 1.8 seconds per day. And the reason it was that speed was because, uh, well, I realized that a vinyl record you know, is a beautiful kind of representation of time. You have its rotation, uh, you have, you know, this feeling of moving in and out on the platter. So I, I made this piece of music so it fit on the vinyl record such that one rotation of the record was one day of my lived time. And so you hear it go around and you hear the kind of, you know, motifs of my everyday life unfold as this record turns. And you can actually see what time that you're hearing by where the stylus is on the record. 
I'm liking this idea of the revolution of the day or the day as one revolution. Yeah, yeah, it's lovely. And I got to say, like, this is a beautiful object, like this record. I'm, I'm just so sad that they only made 20 of them because I really want one. They could at least have made 365. <laughs> exactly, right. So I worked with uh, a friend of mine who's a designer, Greg Mahalko, and we, you know, we made a, a, a diagram for the surface of the record, you know, like, like it was a clock. So you could see the time and you could see what month you were at in the year. And we even put in there, you know, what city I was in. So cities corresponded to key changes. And, you know, it turns out that it, it, it sounds pretty cool, I think. It sounds good because, well, because most of the time it's just kind of riffing on this major third, uh, you know, which is me at home in New York City. Um, you know, when you get to the, the kind of uh, jazz intervals, that, that's, that's when I'm going farther afield. So yeah, but he's he's making audible this kind of unheard rhythm of urban life, right? Um, and and definitely we'll put a link to the website so you can see what the record looks like. Right. Yeah. So I, I think an important point to think about here is that, you know, from from Brian's perspective, this isn't a representation per se, right? He doesn't want you to decode this right. and figure out that he was in Berlin in July or whatever. Berlin is F sharp. <laughs> Right. <laughs> but but he's, he's giving us a way of sensing these social relationships um, in these different kinds of rhythms through space, the ways we move through space and the ways we interact with humans and non-humans, actually. Right. That, I mean, this is a this is what people ought to be thinking more about is pattern among organisms. Yeah. Yeah. These relations in expanding our idea of what social relations are. Exactly. So far, what we're hearing, you know, mainly is his sort of geographic relation, right? Right. But as you'll hear, he got inspired by um, some more work that he did and, and started to think more about the relationships that are going on between humans and even non-humans right so he's going backwards and forwards to this network through this network of spaces but there are other things in those spaces i had some experiences with field recording over the last couple of years uh, that really opened up my thinking in in regard to rhythm as a social relationship um, and this really comes off of some of the classic you know, work in acoustic ecology uh, from people like Bernie Krauss and this idea of the, the niche hypothesis. Ah, yes, the niche hypothesis. <laughs> and what is that, Chris? It's that sense that at every living thing that is producing sound has its place within the overall sonic ecosystem of a given environment. Different organisms uh, communicate in their own kind of frequency bands in a way that they won't interfere uh, with each other and can just kind of zero in on the, you know, the particular frequencies that are of interest to them. So, 
I went to Botswana with, with National Geographic and did some field recording in the Okavango Delta region. And this is one of the, you know, kind of richest ecosystems in the world. Tons of sound made by all kinds of, of, of animals. And so I would just put up the, you know, the microphone and let the soundscape unfold. And then looking at those recordings later. Now, when, when Brian says looking at the recordings, he's actually talking about a spectrogram, right? So you feed a recording into this software and it shows you all the different frequencies that are being used in that particular recording. It's very clear how, how different species have uh, organized themselves in, in, in very specific frequency bands. So they're layers, right? It looks like a geographic stratification. absolutely fascinating uh, and you can pick out like okay here are the here are the frogs here are the insects this is this particular type of bird uh, you know these are the big mammals at the bottom um, so they're all organized in, in, in their particular frequency band and, and, and also temporally right you know there's different rhythms uh, that these animals use that spread out and kind of interleave with each other uh, so it's, it's very apparent that the different species in a soundscape, like in the Okavango, uh, ha have learned how to listen, not, not only to each other, but a certain sensitivity to where they fit in within the environment. And, you know, in some cases, they might not be able to even hear each other uh, because of the, the physiology of their hearing. Or in other cases, they might be paying specific attention to noises outside of their frequency band uh, because that's a different type of relationship. That's maybe a, a, a threat or potential lunch. That a bit of mammals at the bottom. But within their own frequency band, right, that's, that's a, a very kind of social relationship. You know, those are our mating calls, our territorial calls, right? Like this, this kind of, of organization within a society. So sound in that context, uh, you know, becomes a very direct way to think about social relationships through rhythm. And we can learn about, you know, how these things form themselves. Uh, hang on a minute, Mag. Brian is talking about pitch but i thought we were talking about rhythm yeah you know i had that same reaction too but he's reminding us that pitch is rhythm that frequency is a micro rhythm that just moves so quickly that we perceive it as pitch well one way to think about it is that this is all just movement right and it, it's movement at different speeds music for instance is audible human motion. That's an interesting way to think about it because the different uh, speeds of the human body 
show up in the way that we organize musical time. So for instance, the main pulse of a song, you know, like the, the beat, that's, that's a heartbeat rhythm, right? Or it's a walking rhythm. You know, those the two things together that uh, reflect kind of the energy of the piece. But of course there's faster, uh, faster sounds that happen in that. The notes flying by, well that's kind of, you know, at the speed that we move our fingers, right? It's a different type of rhythm because it references like a different part of the, our f physiology. And then, you know, the tone uh, is something that does correspond to the voice. And this idea of timbre, something that, you know, vibrates on a level that we hear as, uh, as the quality of the sound, or even to the pitch of the sound, you know, that, that vibrates our, our eardrum. Hey, what's up guys? It's Moloch, the dark god of information capitalism. Moloch, whose eyes are a thousand blind windows. Moloch, whose soul is electricity and banks. Just taking a quick break to remind you guys to rate Phantom Power on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And even better, write a review of the show. That's what we in the industry call engagement. And it lets Apple know that this podcast rocks. Today we want to give a big old shout out to Steph Sarasco, who wrote an iTunes review called Sound Nerds Unite. Really thoughtful and provocative, she writes. Great podcast for sound nerds. <laughs> Thanks, Steph. So remember, do Chris and Mac a solid and leave a review. Who knows, maybe you'll get a shout out from yours truly, Moloch, the dark god of information capitalism. Now back to the show. So it's all about relationships between bodies then. It's all these temporal relationships between different parts of our bodies and our bodies connecting with one another temporally through sound. Yeah, and there's a similar idea in dance, which is that when you try to stand still, there are uh, multiple small dances going on within the standing still body. Hmm. That's really nice. And I think finally we can we can bring this back to the rats. <laughs> bring the rats back, Mac. So I guess the rhythms that I'm particularly interested in are those that happen on a scale that are outside of the motion of our human body, right? They're either faster or slower. And so we don't typically experience them as sound or music but through whether it's you know electronic technology or some other uh, some other strategy we can scale those things so that they can make sense i mean literally make sense right to our bodies and we can feel as music or sound something that you know would normally be operating on a on a different level um, on a different frequency strata so to speak you know just like the the niche hypothesis of, of Bernie Krause. And yeah, so this is what uh, got me interested in rats. Well, it's a little bit of a lie. I've always been interested in rats uh, from <laughs> for multiple different reasons. 
Rats are fascinating, right? Because they're an animal. They are a wild animal. But they live entirely within, uh, you know, human urban areas, right? You know, we're talking about the, the Norwegian rat or the brown rat here, um, which spread via capitalism to every major metropolitan uh, city around the world. Rats have adapted to living among us, you know, in a, in a really remarkable way. And this idea that, you know, there's a, a human nature divide, that nature is somehow elsewhere, uh, and that a city, a human city, you know, this, the center of human culture is quintessentially non-nature. Rats burrow through that all the time. You know, they make it very clear uh, that we have our own animal nature and that, you know, nature is a process uh, that's, that's continually happening. This is a very different idea of a city, too. Yeah, yeah, this whole uh, idea he's opening up that the city is actually a natural space. Right. And this this uh, natural um, and cultural divide that we've made, th- these boundaries that we set up, the rats have no respect for whatsoever. Yeah. And in fact, all of our efforts to be civilized humans have just produced this environment for the rats to burrow through. I was particularly excited about rats when I learned that the social vocalizations that they make are largely above the human range of hearing, right? So we all know what a rat sounds like, quote unquote, in terms of squeaks or high-pitched, you know, growls or something. but these kind of like, you know, awful rat noises we associate with fear or anger or, you know, these kinds of emotions that, that we attach to rats. Um, and, and that's what they are. That's what's being expressed, you know, in, in, in the squeaks that we can hear. But what's going on above what we can hear is all the fun stuff. the social interactions, the, the, the playful interactions, uh, the mating, uh, when young rats are playing, when rats are courting each other, you know, when they're establishing their social hierarchies. All of this is happening outside of our range of hearing. So, this is fabulous, and I can't help thinking about all of the other species communication that we're not hearing. Some of it is to do with pitch, as in that niche hypothesis idea, and some of this is to do with volume Mm -hmm. and location. Yeah, the rats are, by design, rather imperceivable to us. Sure. We don't perceive the rats very easily. And interestingly enough, they don't perceive us. The range that it can hear uh, presumably covers, you know, its entire vocal range. So, you know, up to, 
in the 90 kilohertz range. Um, the the lower range, of course, is is dictated to some extent by by the size of its body. And a, a rat can actually uh, not hear the fundamental frequencies of the human voice. The overtones of our voices that, that you know, do transmit something, but kind of the, the fundamental frequency is, is still below the, the rat's range of hearing. You know, if you really wanted to talk to a rat, doing so with a human voice is, is, not, <laughs> is not ideal. Uh, it's, a sub, it's a subsonic frequency for them, right? So I just find this so fascinating, Chris, that we have this uh, sort of symbiotic relationship with these creatures, but we can't directly communicate with them through the voice that we live in these sort of parallel universes or, or niches. Yeah, absolutely. And the, uh, when Brian was talking about the hearing range of the rat there, it immediately made me say to myself, well, what's the hearing range of the human? We're 20 to 20,000 hertz. This is way lower than that rat range. Dolphins and bats, for example, can hear frequencies up to 100,000 hertz, higher than the rats even. And ele ele elephants are, are, are even lower than we are. So there's something here to do with mass and frequency that I think is of interest too. Yeah, it's the embodiedness of our perception, right? right. Uh, it's, it's very based on the instrument that we are. And what makes this very interesting um, from an artistic point of view for Brian is our tools are designed to record frequencies that humans can hear. That's right. So when Brian did decide that he wanted to create this artwork of recording the voices of rats, um, he had to find special ultrasonic microphones right. that could record those frequencies. And of course, it's really only because digital technologies um, operate at such high frequency rates now that these sounds can even be recorded at all. I realized that it might be possible to build something that would let me record rats in their burrows in New York City, under the sidewalk, in the parks, you know, in the trash dumps, whatever, that I could, if I could leave a microphone there for a long period of time and let them, you know, habituate to it, maybe I would pick up some of the social interactions that were happening when I wasn't around uh, and, you know, and, and listen in on, on how they were talking. Yeah, and it, may, it makes me wonder when people say that they're making a field recording, what they're actually catching, uh, and were they to put them through a similar process of uh, modification, they would hear other sounds that they didn't realize were part of that field of audition or that horizon of listening. And and this, this raises the point of just the technical issue that he faced of of down pitching the rats voices 
into a perceptible bandwidth for human beings. So uh, maybe we should... Uh, let's hear some. Yeah, let's hear how he did that. More rats. <laughs> More rats, please. Well, yeah, so I, I did this project called Urban Intonation, which was just taking you know these rat recordings that I've been making in the ultrasonic range and changing the frequencies of the rat voices in those recordings uh, to a range that, that we could hear, that we could experience. And, you know, whenever you change the frequency of something, um, that's an active interpretation. You know, you're, you're changing the pitch in a mathematical sense, but you're also changing, you know, how it's situated in the world, uh, what it resonates with, you know, all kinds of other things shift. So I aimed to make it as close as possible to human speech. Close as possible meaning putting it in the range of human speech and also making a little bit slower temporarily, right? Rats speak very high and they also speak very fast. So I slowed it down a bit and lowered the pitch uh, so that we would hear it as speech, right? Hear it closer to something that we would understand as a social relation. And they sing, you know, they sing and hum and, you know, make these sounds that are uninterpretable by us, but clearly have uh, a social meaning to them. It's not an other creature that is too low or too high or, or, or too other. It's coming at us, you know, as, as speech would, would come at us. But when you listen to those sounds, you know, they really are uncanny in this way because you hear aspects of personality, you know, you hear these things that sound human, but of course there's a kind of fundamental, you know, unhumanness to it. And in terms of how to present the piece then, I used PA speakers, something that's making announcements that is addressing the public, right? It's making a particular type of, of public space through that, through that address. So why not, why not put the rat voices, uh, why not present them like that, right? <laughs> because that's a totally different relationship. You know, it, it's positioning the animal not as a, a in a subservient, you know, position to, to our idea of public space, but as the kind of authoritative voice. So one of the one of the interesting final pieces of this for me was that when he was recording the rats and getting at the frequencies where they live and communicate, so to speak. He found that there were very few human sounds in that space. 
Well, so the first thing that struck me when recording ultrasonically in New York City is that even though, you know, this is a noisy city, right? There's all kinds of things happening. There's people talking, there's, there's you know, buses going by, you know, the occasional bird, the radio, the, you know, whatever it is. All of that, or at least most of that, happens within our hearing range, right? So it's below 20 hertz that the, 20 kilohertz, it's below 20 kilohertz that the noise of the city is really present. Once you get into the ultrasonic range, that, that goes away, right? You hear the occasional kind of, you know, eerie squeal of, of certain mechanical sounds uh, or certain electric devices, you know, that, that are making noise up there. But for the most part, there's a lot more space. So part of their adaption to living among us, you know, is that they're able to hear and they're able to speak in a range uh, that isn't interfered with, you know, by all, by all the, the noise that we're making. I, I find that really interesting, right? Because, uh, you know, what is it about our species that we make noise within the range that we can hear? You know, thus, thus making it more difficult for us to hear ourselves. That's it for this episode of Phantom Power. Thanks again to Brian House. You can learn more about Phantom Power and find transcripts and links to some of the things we've talked about at phantompod.org. You can subscribe to our show there or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you rated us on Apple Podcasts. That helps a lot. Tell us what you thought about the show on Facebook or give us a shout on Twitter at Phantom Pod. Today's show featured music by Brian House Graham Gibson and Daniel Fishkin's Daxophone Quartet. We want to big up our interns, Natalie Cooper, Nicole Keshock, and Adam Whitmer. Welcome aboard. Oh no, I can't say welcome aboard. That's a terrible thing to say. Phantom Power is made possible through a generous grant from the Miami University Humanities Center and the National Endowment for the Humanities.